On behalf of RBCS, welcome to today's webinar on extracting insight and confidence from a voyage into the unknown. I am Rex Black, president of RBCS, a worldwide testing and quality assurance firm serving clients ranging from small startups to Fortune 20 global enterprises. Since 1994, RBCS has delivered insight and confidence to hundreds of clients around the world. We have a team of international consultants that deliver customized training, consulting, and outsourcing services to companies that are looking to improve their test and quality assurance practices. I am the author of 12 books on software testing, including the bestseller Managing the Testing Process, and four books on the ISTQB program. Attendance at today's webinar earns PMI PDUs. I would like to thank Linda Thorne for reviewing the materials for PDU status and for making valuable suggestions. Attendees will receive an email telling them how to claim PDUs, including the PDU code. PDUs are available for live webinar attendance only. Before we start the presentation, a couple notes. If you have any questions during the course of the webinar, feel free to submit them at any time via your webinar interface, but please note they are answered only at the end. There's no need to ask for presentation copies. The presentation is on the web. Go to rbcs-us.com. Click on the resources button at the, in the upper middle of the uh, web uh, homepage and from there navigate to the basic library. And by attending this webinar, you have been automatically registered for the free e-learning drawing. Check your email over the next couple days and watch the spam filter. Hope you enjoy this free webinar from RBCS. We do these free webinars as a service to the software testing community because at RBCS we are a not just for profit company. So before we launch into this, a quick um, um, note on this week. Um, we ran a, a virtual class uh, earlier this week and uh, had a little bit of a rough patch with it. Um, it our internet um, failed uh, here in the office. Uh, and and in, while it, the way it failed wasn't just all of a sudden it didn't work, it just got flaky, um, which led to all sorts of problems with the audio and the and the screens being presented to people on the Monday session and then as luck would have it the backup location that we identified and went to um, also developed connectivity issues in the second half um, of the uh, presentation so it was two rough days um, fortunately we had uh, the ability to recover using recordings of previous sessions that we give people access to and so forth yesterday was fine from here in the office using the same equipment I'm using now um, so I'm gonna cross my fingers and hope that today is like yesterday and not like Monday <laughs> um, but if <clears throat> you do experience a prolonged audio dropout please do uh, use the Q&A interface to send me uh, a note on that because um, I, I want to monitor that and see if that's if if the problem which appears to be solved is actually solved so appreciate your help with that again if you if you have a prolonged dropout more than say a second um, let me know um, because of the way that GoToWebinar is built there will be the occasional um, dropout if you if you momentarily lose your connection to the, the GoToWebinar server it doesn't buffer the audio output um, so if your connection briefly goes down you will have a, a short dropout but if I get messages from everybody saying they had a dropout then I know that that's not what happened so thanks for your help uh, I'm gonna hope for the best and hope that this is not gonna be anything like Monday 
All right, so um, insight and confidence from a voyage into the unknown. What am I talking about here? So testing is a very interesting um, job um, because we, we are doing something that is um, deliberately unpredictable. So now I get that there are, there are unpredictable elements of writing code as well, but you know, in the years that I've spent um, working as a programmer, first professionally working as a programmer, and now occasionally writing programs as part of uh, creating courses and supporting technical types of courses and doing test automation and so forth, I've been doing programming on and off since uh, 1983. And um, <clears throat> Basically, a lot of what you do as a programmer is about kind of trying to reduce the amount of unpredictability. Of course, you don't know exactly what you're going to build when you sit down to write the code, but you have um, usually in your mind some patterns that you use to solve certain kinds of problems. Um, and over time, your repertoire as a programmer increases, and, and uh, the extent to which what you're doing is unpredictable gets to be less and less. You can't do that in testing. The, the very nature of what we're doing um, is trying to see what happens under certain conditions. If it were possible to predict our results in advance, we wouldn't need to test. So um, we're going off, we're gathering information that um, no one has, no one knows. We, we are the first to know how the program behaves, how the software under test behaves under certain circumstances. That knowledge is useless if it is not transmitted to other people in the organization in any in a way which is coherent and understandable and consistent with other information that is being uh, that we are delivering unfortunately um, when um, people report their test results oftentimes they are not uh, especially coherent um, we confuse people and sometimes even have contradictory results. So <clears throat> we're going to look at in the presentation today how to identify whether you are or are not delivering insight and confidence to your uh, stakeholders, uh, how, to, how to know whether you are or you aren't, how to recognize typical problems uh, that exist in the uh, uh, delivering of uh, test results and information and how to fix those problems. So first, let's, let's take a step back here. You, you know, you might assume, oh, I know what testing is about. I, I, know, I know what I'm doing. Mm, okay, but let's just question that assumption for a moment and ask yourself why do you test? What are you trying to accomplish? Is it just a matter of finding a whole bunch of bugs? Is that all you're trying to do? Find a bunch of bugs? You get to be like, like the super geek if you find the, the most nasty bugs or the most bugs? Um, there are certainly people out there that seem to approach testing that way. Um, <clears throat> I actually had a test manager say a very curious thing to me once that he said that he thought that his, his most successful project as a test manager was one where he and his team managed to find so many bugs that they got the project canceled. 
which seemed very a very odd thing to say, um, because you know in a project team you're basically all in the same boat, and you know if you manage to shoot holes under the other guy's feet and the boat sinks, you're still in the sinking boat. So um, <clears throat> just saying I find a bunch of bugs, I you know I'm the the uh, pessimist um, who delights in uh, raining on everybody's parade. Um, you know, that's that's probably not really a good way of thinking about it. That's kind of a narcissistic, self-involved way of, of looking at, at testing. Um, so <clears throat> back up and say, okay, I test why? I test to provide a service to others on the project team. Right? Maybe you haven't thought of that that way before, but you are indeed a service provider. You are providing a service to the rest of the project that is illuminating um, things that are unknown about the quality of the product. So don't just think tactically. The tactics of testing are running tests and finding bugs, and that's that. those are bread and butter tactical things, and obviously we have to be very, very good at doing those things, but we also need to think about the strategic aspects. How are we supporting the organization? What does the organization want from us? Why do we have to think about that? Well, because they're paying for us, for us to exist. If you're being paid a salary as a tester, they're not just paying you just because you're fun to have around. They're paying you because you are supporting some sort of strategic objective. And it's up to us to understand what those objectives are and make sure that we are fulfilling them. So think about this. If you haven't clearly defined your objectives beyond, oh, I run tests and find bugs, you haven't defined objectives that relate to the strategic needs of the organization, how could you possibly succeed? And the old line about, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there, right? That's the same problem that you would have if you don't have to find uh, objectives, but I go into a lot of organizations, uh, and I would say the lion's share of them, a vast majority, do not have clearly defined objectives for the test team. So it's no surprise that the question of whether the test team is succeeding or failing is uh, a matter of, of opinion, and opinions vary considerably on that point in those organizations. Um, <clears throat> how could you possibly measure your success? if you don't know what you're trying to accomplish. Again, going back to the metaphor of if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. Now, if you're just looking at your speedometer and you go, well, I'm going 80 miles an hour, but is that 80 miles an hour getting you closer to or further from your goal destination? Now, if you don't have a destination, then you know you could say you're driving away from it as, well, as much as, as likely as you're driving towards it. So, what are you trying to accomplish? What does the organization need you to accomplish? Now, this, this can vary. So, I'm not here to say this list is the golden list and all testing organizations are about accomplishing these objectives. But I will say that these are very typical objectives that I encounter when I work with organizations. Again, not they're often not clearly defined, but if you have conversations with the testers and the developers and the 
business stakeholders, people like marketing people, sales people, business analysts, uh, executives, and so forth. Uh, after a while, you can get to the objectives and see that these are fairly typical things that people are looking for. Um, so certainly from a tactical point of view, one of the things that we need to accomplish is to find bugs, especially the important bugs, and provide the developers the information they need to fix those important bugs before the product gets shipped out to the customer. That is the immediate tactical objective of testing. Uh, if you're working in an agile team, you're going to be very much trying to find as many of those important bugs as you possibly can before the end of the sprint so that the uh, product can be uh, potentially shippable software by the, that, the end of, uh, of that period. Um, and agile or sequential project, it's a trap that you can fall into to just be entirely focused on that. Agile is particularly suspect to this or subject to this because Everybody in the Agile team is, uh, is supposed to be focused on the immediate tactical goals of the sprint, which is get the user stories into a potentially shippable state, um, integrated into a package of software that is itself potentially shippable um, by the end of the sprint. <clears throat> but if that's all you're focusing on, that's, that's a hamster wheel. Because as I said, that's not strategic. So another thing that organizations are looking for, and this is especially from people outside of the uh, development team, developers are looking for this to some extent, but the people outside of the development teams are really looking for this. They want to have confidence that the testing was done sufficiently, the sufficient testing was done, and ultimately they want to have confidence that the quality of the product is sufficient. Is the software potentially shippable? Is this something we can deliver to our customers? That's a question that has to be answered, and we have to provide the answer to that question, or part of the answer to that question, the information that helps that decision get made. Now, mature executives and business stakeholders understand that there is no such thing as perfect software, no such thing as software without any bugs in it, and that there is going to be some risk of failure. I actually had a operations um, uh, guy, operations executive, I'm forgetting, I guess, yeah, director of operations in a utility say um, very, very clearly, he, he had clearly thought about this. I asked him, what is testing about? And he says, testing is a risk mitigation exercise designed to reduce the risk of failure in production to an acceptable level. I was like, okay, here's here's a guy who has thought about what, what, what we're trying to accomplish with testing. So there might be, you might find that some people are, have thought about it that clearly. I get, I bet not because it was a surprise to me. I think that was the, the first time I can remember during an assessment that somebody clearly articulated uh, a, a well thought out objective for testing that was uh, reasonable and achievable. I've heard a lot of stuff like make sure it make sure it works when we go into production, which is of course you know an unachievable objective. You want to make sure that you get that kind of thing out of the way. This guy had clearly thought long and hard about you know what what can we do with testing? What can really be accomplished? What he was interested in is as an operations guy, he's got to deal with the software in operations. He understands that it's not going to be perfect, but 
he wants an acceptable level of risk. And how do they know that an acceptable level of risk has been achieved? How do they know what level of confidence to have in the quality of the product? That's the fourth objective that I often run into, giving them that information that they need to make decisions. And not just, are we done, but throughout the project, what's the right thing to do next based on the quality of what we're dealing with? So you have to think about both the, the tactical objective and the strategic objectives. And you can't think about them unless you have them clearly uh, defined. So <clears throat> part of the problem here, part of how we um, fall down on the job um, has to do with the delivery of that information. Um, because if the information delivery fails to uh, be adequate, then then you're not people are not going to know whether the risk has been reduced to an acceptable level, and they're not going to have confidence in the product. So again, you know, as I said at the outset, um, the information that we gain as testers is worthless to the organization if we do not successfully transmit it to the other people in the organization who need it. So this is indeed, the results reporting is indeed a, a, a main contributor to that failure to deliver uh, the value. So um, one of the typical things that gets reported when test results are reported is bug results. What, what do we find? What's their relative severities and, and priorities? Um, which ones are still active versus fixed. Um, this is all important information, but it's not enough by itself. Um, if I say I have found 100 bugs and 95 are fixed and five are still remaining to be fixed, and of those five that remain to be fixed, I've got two SEV1s and uh, three uh, SEV2s. Well, okay, <laughs> and even if I get into the details of what those five remaining bugs are, I might be able to demonstrate that I should not have confidence and that there is a significant risk of failure, but what if those bugs are actually not sev ones and twos, but more like threes and fours or fours and fives? Hmm, okay. Then the obvious question is, well... <laughs> What don't I know? What haven't you told me? Right? So the, the information is incomplete. Now, usually what people do is say, oh, okay, not only am I going to tell people about the bugs that I found and their, their status, but I'm also going to tell people about the tests. So what have we tested? Which ones passed? Which ones fail? Which ones haven't we run? Again, also important, but incomplete. If I say I have run 500 tests and 475 of them have passed and 20 remain to be run and five have failed, hmm, okay, yeah, but what did you test? What did you cover? Keep in mind, a test case is an abstraction. It's an, you've abstracted it away from 
some test basis, something that you based your test on, a requirement specification, a risk, um, a supported configuration, a user persona, role-based security uh, rules, something. There's some something out there that needed to be covered, and you abstracted away from that um, and created a test case. Okay, but that means that the relationship between the test case and the test basis is not obvious on the face of the test case. Some indications are usually there, the name of the test, so forth, gives you some idea, but you can only see what's there. You can't see what's not there and should be there. So <clears throat> it gives you some insight in terms of confidence you can say, okay, well, the things that I see listed as tests that pass, okay, that gives me some insight into how, how confident I should be. But it doesn't tell me a whole lot about what's the residual level of risk because what's, what's not there that should be there. Many times people will miss that, especially if you, if you present a big, long list of tests and their pass-fail status. This is a common mistake. People go into these project status meetings and they've got this, this list of tests that have run and, and their, their current status, pass-failed or not yet run, and people get lost in the sea of, of test cases. Um, I've had on a number of occasions talk to people who are outside of project teams and even developers who say, you know, I, I just can't keep up. I mean, they, they tell me about the, these tests and, and, they, and we're starting to rattle off all these tests, uh, but I get lost in the, in the detail. I get inundated by the detail and um, it's, it becomes very difficult for me to think about uh, what's, what's not there that should be there. Um, now, we don't, I don't think, do this on purpose, but what we are doing accidentally is exactly a sales tactic that is employed by car dealerships, which is to overwhelm you with choices. Um, if you've read uh, Kahneman's book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, he references some studies that have been done in that or that, that demonstrate that once you have a certain amount of information, any additional information beyond that will actually decrease the quality of your choices. And so what we are inadvertently doing is playing used car salespeople to the project teams. We are inundating them with too much information at too fine-grained a level and, and then um, daring them to make sense of it effectively. Now, we can make sense of it because it's the, the, the ocean in which we swim, right? So we, we get it. That's a, that, Again, that's our tactical day-to-day -day stuff is all about bugs and test cases. So, of course it's going to be tempting to speak that language. But keep in mind that outside of the test team, nobody else speaks that language. And so, as I said, we are effectively acting like used car salespeople, um, inundating our stakeholders with too much detailed information, what I call the fire hose of information, fire hose of data. Uh, and they are un unable to assemble a coherent, understandable picture out of that. And we are actually, uh, in all likelihood, 
contributing to them making worse decisions, not better decisions. How's that, how's that for an irony? Our whole point of our existence is to help them make better decisions, providing them with the information they need, but all too often what, what are, we do as testers is we actually expose them to so much information that they're for, far more likely to make worse decisions. So here's, here's a, a thought experiment. We're, we're not the only people to do this. A lot of professions, they kind of they have their own language and they communicate to people uh, outside of that, people who are paying them to do something um, outside of that, that profession. They communicate in that language to them and leave, the, leave people confused. So let's say you have a car, you want to take it on a long trip, a long road trip, and you decide, you know, I have this car for quite a while. Probably be smart to have a mechanic look at it before I go on a drive. So, if if the mechanic comes back at the end of the the, the day, calls you up and says, um, you know, come on in, car, your car's ready, and you do, you come in, and then the mechanic says, okay, well, we uh, we found, um, excuse me, we found ten problems and and we fixed them. And we tested uh, 20, 20 systems. Uh, excuse me. I had a bee that was trying to invite itself into my house. So I'm not interested in having the bee in here with on <laughs> doing the webinar. Um, so they found and fixed 10 problems, they say, and then they tested 20 different systems. Okay. Does that give you confidence? Does that give you insight? No, because they're you know they're rattling off the names of the systems and the names of the problems, but uh, you know were those problems that it actually relate to the use of the car? How do how do they relate to the use of the car? Oh, your oil was old. We we changed your oil. I go, okay, well I can see how the oil is important, and that one sort of makes sense to me. But they say, well we replaced the master cylinder in your um, your manual transmission. Oh God. What? Why? What does that do? Um, I mean, you know, that that doesn't tell me anything. Um, again, what's what's not in that information that should be there, right? What problems have they missed? I don't know. Um, what? It, how how does the testing that they did relate to my ability to drive the car? Now, these are all things that they could explain. They could explain to me these are why the 20 systems we tested are the important systems. These are why the problems we fixed were important. Um, these are the things that could still go wrong. This is stuff that could still fail in the car. Um, you know, they can explain it to me in language that I want to speak, which is what confidence should I have uh, in the car working properly and what insight do I have into things that could still go wrong. So, the trick here, again, involves stepping outside of the testing perspective and looking at this situation from the non-testers perspective. So, two questions. I'm doing assessments, which, which we like, I like to do these. It's a very, very interesting experience doing these assessments. When I talk to people outside of the testing uh, team, 
I ask them, do you understand the test results that have been reported to you? And does your understanding of the results help you do your job better? Now, we would want the answers to both of those questions to be yes. Otherwise, we are not a valuable source of information to that particular stakeholder. And if there's enough of the stakeholders that don't answer both of those questions, yes, we have a real problem. We're failing to deliver the key value that we are supposed to be delivering. But unfortunately, the usual answers that I get are no, and therefore no. And I don't, I don't understand the test results. And obviously, since I don't understand them, I can't use those as a element in my decision making. So, so basically, you've got somebody who's perplexed, you know. Um, and, and the problem, the problem with people with, with with the perplexed person is they're often going to assume that the reason that they're perplexed is because they're stupid. Um, I saw this happen in a, a, a test plan review meeting once that uh, they were somebody had copied and pasted some uh, material from a training course that I used into their exit criteria for the test plan. And some of those those exit criteria were completely irrelevant to this particular project. And we're going through the review of the test plan. And we got a bunch of non-testers, developers, and other project stakeholders in, in this review. We get into the exit criteria, and the guy, the test manager who's leading the review, walks through those exit criteria. And everybody in the room, you could just see the question marks floating above their heads. So there's like 30 people in there. Nobody. Nobody asked a question. How how is this particular exit criteria relevant to our project? And some of them, like I said, were clearly completely irrelevant. Nothing to do with the 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 software being tested. People didn't ask because they were perplexed, and <clears throat> nobody else said anything. So everybody was thinking, hmm, nobody's saying anything. So this must make sense to everybody else. So I must be dumb for not getting this. And so that's my fault. So I don't want to ask any questions uh, about this because it's going to, I'm basically going to be trumpeting my ignorance. But the problem is that <laughs> when people think that way, um, these kinds of mistakes happen. That they don't have the information they need. They're not getting the... the the uh, insight, but they don't say anything. So it's up to us to detect and resolve the source of their perplexity. Um, now, the other answer that I get to these two questions is, yes, I understand them, but it, it doesn't help me do my job. Uh, the, the test results are basically irrelevant. Now, this this kind of situation, somebody who is confronted by irrelevant information is more likely to question it. So it's the first situation that's more likely to exist and, and remain invisible. Um, but still, um, I have had plenty of people say, yeah, I, I understand all these test case counts and bug counts, but you know, not relevant to me. Um, so don't sit back and say, oh yeah, you know, I'm sure this happens to other people, but my stakeholders and in, in, in the organization I work in, they love me and they tell me I'm doing a great job and so forth. Um, 
so this can't be happening to me. Don't assume that. Uh, they don't understand what you do, probably, and why you do it. Again, they're not necessarily clear on the objectives. So they might just be thinking, well, it's a best practice to have a tester, but I don't know why. And we, we got a tester, and he seems like a really smart guy, and I like him personally, so he must be doing a good job. And whatever it is he's supposed to be doing, he must be doing it. And you might say, well, you know, what's wrong with that? Um, if that's what's going on in people's heads, um, then fine. Um, well, the problem is that's what's going on in their head until that's not what's going on in their head. Um, and so, like, product gets released, product has huge bug in it, customers are howling about quality, guess who takes the fall? Remember what happened to the, when they uh, had that bad release of that Apple Watch software up, update recently? Guess who got thrown under the bus in, in by, by Apple? The test manager. So this is, this is something that you're, you're definitely at risk of if people don't understand what you're doing and why you're doing it, and they're not getting the um, insight and confidence that they need out of your results. Because clearly, they um, felt that an unacceptable risk of failure in production had been taken, and they felt justified in blaming that on the test manager. Now, you know, throwing people under the bus is a time-honored tradition in, in all sorts of professions, but there's no point in making yourself the most logical scapegoat by, by being the person who's not delivering the information that people need. So insight and confidence, what are we talking about? You got to love the internet because, you know, I would have had to pull down a Webster's Dictionary and look this up physically and then type it in. But thanks to dictionary.com, I was able to very quickly get the definitions and pop them in here. Um, so insight, penetrating mental vision, seeing the underlying truth. So not superficial. Now you see how insight, when you start talking about big wads of test cases and, and big long lists of bugs, see how that's going to likely be detrimental to insight? Because the underlying truth is not going to just jump out of there fully formed like um, uh, Diana from the head of Zeus. Um, confidence. Full trust. Belief in the powers, trustworthiness, or reliability of a person or thing. And remember, the confidence that, that you want here is confidence in your testing and, by extension, you and your colleagues, and confidence in the product. So <clears throat> that question I asked, do you understand the test results that are reported to you? That's about insight. Are they giving you insight? Does your understanding of the results help you do your job better? That's about confidence, right? Both of those relate to risk reduction. So these are very simple questions, very, very simple questions. But do people ask non-testers those questions? Often not. Okay, so your mission, if you choose to accept it, uh, go and ask those questions. 
Don't send an email. Go talk to people. Ask them the questions about understanding of the test results. Does it help them do their job? Um, <clears throat> if they don't understand, find out what's perplexing them. They do understand, but they're irrelevant. Find out what they're missing. So how do the results confuse you? What do you find confusing? What information am I not giving you? Now, that's, that's a hard one for them to answer because they don't know. They're, they're probably likely to come back and go, well, what information can you give me? So more on that in a bit. Um, if they say basically that it's irrelevant, yeah, I understand what you're telling me, but, you know, it doesn't help me do my job. Hmm. Okay, what's, uh, what am I telling you that you don't think is helpful to you? It might be that they don't understand what's hidden in there and that you're just not summarizing it enough. Um, frequency can be an issue. So the classic, classic test manager mistake is the end of every day to fire up um, ALM or Rational Test Manager or some one of these other test management tools, produce like 20 graphs and tables using the canned reports that are in the test management tools, put those in a zip file, email them out to everybody who's got even a glancing interest or involvement in the project, and say, please see attached test results. Please let me know if you have any questions. And you don't get any questions, and you go, ah, okay. Um, and assume, oh, well, nobody's got any questions, so it must be good. But um, maybe not. Maybe people are, again, the fire hose of data. Maybe it's too frequent. Maybe they start off by looking at it, but then realize, oh, and I just don't have time for this. Um, so think about frequency. Delivery of insight and confidence. Um, how can you get people that insight and confidence more quickly? Less effort on their part. So those are things to, to discuss. And as I said, um, have this as a face-to-face -face conversation with your key stakeholders. Don't just send out an email. This is a, you, you want to have a dialogue with them. Uh, dialogue is important not only in terms of identifying and resolving problems, um, it's also important because it shows that you care. So why, why do we make this mistake? Why do we do this? Well, one of the problems is the, the geeky bug hunt thing. Some people like to just sit away, sit or sit down, and use various reactive testing techniques like exploratory testing and just beat the uh, stuffing out of the software because it's easy and it's fun. Um, and, you know, we're, we're good at it. So bang, 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 look at all the bugs I found. I'm not great. And so we focus on that. Um, <clears throat> same thing with the reporting of the test case results. Pretty easy to do. Got a spreadsheet that's got a list of test cases. We got a test management tool that's got a bunch of test cases in it. So it's easy. So we do it. Um, kind of like the joke about the guy comes out of a, uh, a bar and um, realizes um, 
that he's he's lost his car keys, and so somebody comes upon him and he's underneath the street lamp, walking around in circles under, around the street lamp. The guy comes up to him and says, "What are you doing?" And the guy says, "Looking for my car keys." He's like, "Well, where do, where do you think where did you last have them?" And he's like, points over to the, where the bar is and says, "Well, why aren't you looking over there?" He's like, "Well, here's where the light is." Okay, I mean, where the light is, but that isn't where your car keys are. Um, so, you know, you do you do the things that are simple and obvious, but um, you know, is that is that really the most important thing to do? Again, I, I put some amount of the blame on the uh, test management tools. Um, I think a lot of them have uh, focused on just this sort of uh, tactical stuff. Um, <clears throat> now the bug reporting and test case reporting, and um, testers then rely on them. Oh, well, you know, this is an industry-leading tool, so it must have, you know, must be great in every way, including the reporting facilities. Well, maybe not. It's great if people agree that the reports are great. My experience is that they don't. Um, there's the comfort zone thing. We're comfortable speaking the language of tests and bugs. We're comfortable working at that level. So that's what we do. We, we live there. We focus on that. Um, but we lose sight of the fact that that has the, has the uh, effect of disconnecting us from our stakeholders. And this is a more serious problem for us than it would be for developers because the developer might have challenges communicating about what they do to non-developers but nobody's ever going to question the need to have developers because without developers you don't get a product and further the product sort of speaks for itself but for us the information that we produce and deliver is our product so um, you know we're, we're more at risk on this uh, this sort of thing of, of you know living in our zone of competency um, the Getting lost in the infinite cloud of tests problem is another contributor here, that there's all sorts of stuff that you could potentially test, and so you're just kind of wandering around, test this, test that. Definitely the kind of thing that's going to happen if you just go on the big geeky bug hunt. Um, you haven't really thought about what you should test. What's the most important stuff to test? You're not using techniques like risk-based testing, for example. Um, another issue that can be a problem is where Testers are um, self-appointed quality cops. They they want to set up these quality gates and say, look, if it, these things aren't true, you know, you can't release. I mean, I see these uh, exit criteria or definitions of done. Sometimes it will include things like, you know, zero sev one bugs and no more than three sev two bugs and you know, um, no more than uh, twenty bugs total and uh, uh, no, you know, no more than 5% failed test cases, and that kind of stuff, you know, <laughs> not helpful. Um, every time I've seen that, I've seen you know, this um, major issue of, of false confidence in, in, in those kind of things because, you know, surprise, surprise, numbers get like that get manipulated. Um, <clears throat> so... I'm not saying that all testers make all these mistakes, but I have seen all of these mistakes. I've made those mistakes myself, uh, and I've seen other people make those mistakes. So 
you might be making those mistakes or people on your team might be making those mistakes. So as I said, talk to your stakeholders, listen to them carefully. What are we trying to accomplish? How am I getting you the information that you need? Do you understand it? Does it help you do your job better? Um, study their answers carefully. Talk to them, write their answers down. Um, go off, study them. Think about the mistakes that I discussed. Are you making any of those mistakes? Um, of the mistakes that are being made, the causes of, of problems, do some Pareto analysis here. Don't try to fix everything because you probably can't, but the things that are having the greatest impact on your ability to be a uh, effective, efficient source of, of insight and confidence, you know, identify those problems and fix them. Um, don't jump immediately to the tools. This is, this is the, the, the go-to um, point or the go-to go solution um, that so many people get to. Well, it's, just, it's, it's because of that darn quality center or that rational test manager or whatever. That darn package just doesn't give us the information. You know, it can't read people's minds. You, you're going to need to figure out what, that, what the information is you need to deliver first and then you can address the tool issue. Uh, certainly, you probably want to um, uh, address the tooling part. There probably is a, com a contributing factor, uh, uh, the tool being inadequate or being set up wrong. But if you immediately focus on the tool, you're doing what's called anchoring. Um, and so anchoring is, um, well, you notice that um, if you're in a meeting and somebody makes a statement, so there's a question that's asked about why is X happening, and somebody makes a statement, X is happening because of Y, then everything that follows from that is going to be responding to that assertion. The conversation has now been anchored by that. Uh, you can see this, this happening all the time, and it's a, an especially dismaying example of this happening is occurring right now in uh, the U.S. presidential election, um, and you know it's just about making these these incredible, uh, often outrageous statements, and everything gets anchored around reacting to that in one way or the other. So anchoring is not good. Anchoring is not not a not good for thinking with an open mind and coming up with a with a complete set of solutions. So, <clears throat> don't mistake delivering raw, unfiltered test results in terms of bug counts and test case counts for delivering insight and confidence, because it's not. Um, don't assume that you know what you're supposed to be doing and that everybody agrees with that, because often um, that is not true. You need to have defined specific objectives. Um, you need to look at your test results in terms of those objectives. Are you actually achieving those objectives? Think about your, how you report your results from the non-tester's point of view. Identify the problems there and then try to fix them. Okay, so 
we'll, uh, we'll put up the advertisement here and then we will go into Q&A. Um, now I see Kimberly says that they had the sound go out around 1.38 p.m. my time. Out for several seconds but does not come back on. But nobody else has mentioned any sound problems. And Kimberly's still here, and so I'm assuming that the sound eventually did come back on. So I'm assuming that is a um, uh, one of those intermittent uh, connection drops between somewhere along the line, Kimberly, between your server and um, and uh, the um, Citrix server. Yeah, Juliet says, no problems with sound for me. Yuri says, voice was okay 100% of the time. Jeffrey says, sound was fine out here in Seattle. Um, Rebecca says, just wanted to let you know that audio was intermittent for three minutes. It's from 2.30 to 2.33 Eastern Standard Time. Um Yuri says, thank you, Rex. In my opinion, uh, it was the best of your webinars that I have attended. Cool. Thanks, Yuri. Appreciate that. Um, Bernard, on Frere, how are you? Uh, he says, hi, Rex. Isn't the definition of extra criteria one way to make testers some kind of quality cop, such as mentioned on slide 11? I have no problem at all, and I'm a big supporter of exit criteria and having having defined exit criteria or definition of done in the Agile world. I, I think that's important. Where I get into problems with them is when they rely on easily gameable metrics, like the zero sev ones and no more than three or five sev twos, because. I have just seen that sort of thing where there are where targets get attached to bug severity ratings and just like magic, exactly the acceptable bug severity ratings occur. <laughs> you know, it's just so easily gamed. Same with the test case. You know, five percent of the tests, no more than five percent of the tests fail. That is so easy to game. I I could just take a whole bunch of things that fail, a bunch of test conditions that that fail, and lump them all together in a small number of tests. So what I'm saying is that the exit criteria should say something along the lines of the um, project team agrees based on the test results that the product has adequate quality for delivery and that the risk of failure in production is acceptable. And then let, let the test results, the detailed test results, be used in support of that to make people make arguments for or against that criteria being met. But again, every time I've seen these, these numerical targets in exit criteria or definitions of done, it just like magic, those, the, the, those have been gamed. And, you know, this is like how to lie to yourself with statistics, you know. So that's, that's where my heartburn is. Um, <clears throat> Tony says, greetings from Tony in the Alps of Switzerland. Sound and video worked all the time. Good. Okay. Deepak says, good audio, good audio throughout the session. MG says, um, uh, no audio problems at all. Um, 
Katrina says, are you going to show the slides again for review? I wanted to quote that guy's definition of testers. Um, so Katrina, the slides are available for download. They are on the basic library. Go to the uh, resources tab on the home page, rbcs-us.com. Go navigate from the resources tab to the basic library and you will find the slides there in PDF form. And a recorded version of this webinar will be posted in the digital library in the next oh, week or less. So no problem. You can uh, listen to it uh, as often as you want and direct other people to see them as well. The uh, uh, digital library, basic library, advanced library, those are all free resources available for you to uh, uh, peruse at your convenience. And there's all sorts of stuff in there. Uh, Bernard's response to my comment on exit criteria says, I agree that it is possible to game the number, but sometimes a customer does not want to speak of risk, but only of requirements or specifications. Okay, that's, that's cool. I, we can speak that language. Uh, then, then talk about that. Which requirements are met? Which requirements are not met? Um, which configurations work, which configurations don't work. See, I'm, I'm great. If you want to say, let's report test results in terms of our test basis elements and which ones work and don't work, then I think that's actually meaningful because that's not an abstraction. That is, that is what the customers, and users, and other stakeholders actually care about. And if we can speak uh, our, our mm -hmm. test results in that language, that's a big plus. And I was kind of hinting at that. I don't want to come out and say, this is what you're almost certainly missing. But that's often what is missing, is that, that ability to talk about what the customers, uh, users, and stakeholders actually care about, which is, do, do my pet requirements work? Do my favorite configurations work? Um, they're often not as aware of some of these things uh, as like uh, user personas and role-based security stuff, but they, they do care about it. And if you talk to them in terms of the, those kinds of things, user experience and um, security, uh, they, they'll get it. Uh, Alicia says, the inf this information was great. I often speak with test leads slash managers about determining the right amount of information to share, but be sure not to hide risks or issues. Thinking about how your reader sees the information is critical. Yep, yep, yeah. I mean, thank you for those comments, and I totally agree that, you know, you can't, um, you just can't uh, um, know, you know, am I, am I giving good information? You can't know that without having that, that conversation, right, without trying to see it from, the the other person's point of view. Um, you know, assume it makes well, it makes sense to me, so it must make sense to them. Well, no, not necessarily. <laughs> Sandra says no audio issues. So that's good. Katrina says great. Thanks. Um, Bernard says uh, Rex, my brother, it was a pleasure to hear you again. A good presentation. Thank you. Have a great year and kiss your kiss your women. That is wife and daughters for me. Take care, brother. Same to you, Bernard. Hope you have a very successful 2016, and I get a chance to uh, to run into you at some point in Europe or wherever you might happen to be. Aaron says, uh, "Thank you for the timely webinar, Rex. My 
team is specifying tools, I'm reminded that we need to make sure our responsibilities to the organizations are clear and the new tools will support them. Well, I'm glad it was, glad it was timely. I always like to, uh, to um, be timely and relevant to people. Uh, I will remind everybody um, that the, the recordings are posted out there on the digital library and not just for a limited period, but they're always there. So if, if you find these to be a useful source of information, you know, we've been doing these webinars for over six years now. So there's a whole bunch of recorded ones out there. Um, so I would invite you that, you know, to just periodically peruse the list of recorded webinars and see if there's something out there that is timely and relevant for you and, and feel free to listen to it. Remember, again, there's no charge whatsoever uh, to, to access those resources. Now, if you have follow-up questions and you say, hey, you know, send an email to RBCS and ask them some questions about stuff that was covered in the webinar, that's likely to result in a response along the lines of, this sounds like a very interesting consulting engagement, maybe we send you a quote. But the stuff that's posted out there is there for, for free. Um, and back to your point, Aaron, yes, uh, it is, it is um, very frequently the case that I will find situations where people are in a tool acquisition mode and I say something along the lines of, show me your requirements for the tool. And they give me this blank look. Like I, a client um, last year, you know, somebody was like making this really impassioned case. We, we need, we absolutely need to move from subversion to get. I'm like, show me your requirements for your configuration management tool show me why subversion is not meeting your requirements and get wood. And he's like, well, no, no, it gets just a superior tool. He starts rattling off all these things. And it was clear that he was just, it was sort of kind of a religious type of thing for him. It's kind of like the Pearl versus Ruby arguments that, that I sometimes hear. That's just not, that is not a business case for making a disruptive tool change. I like this tool better. Sorry, that's not the case. You know, it's it's not like picking your personal automobile. You know, you really there there is a best practice to tool selection, and it definitely involves clearly understanding your objectives and then clearly identifying the requirements that you have for the tool. And it, you should not even be thinking about specific tools up until you have done that, because again, what you're going to do is anchor yourself. You're going to whole your thinking is going to get shaped by the, the marketing collateral that's getting thrown at you by the tool vendor or the, um, the supporters of the tool if it's an open source and all the claimed excellence of it. Um, <clears throat> Bruce says, um, are the slides copyrighted? Um, well, yeah, if you look at the bottom, look at the very bottom middle, <laughs> they, are, they are copyrighted. Uh, would we be able to quote your work? Um, Bruce says, sorry, stupid question. Yes, just saw it. Well, I mean, you know, I'm being somewhat sarcastic. Uh, it's a perfectly good question. So would you would you be able to quote it? So there is this concept of fair use, um, which allows you to quote uh, minimal selections, excerpts of material with attribution. Um, and of course, if you want to link to the PDF of the slides, um, that's perfectly acceptable or link to the 
the video of uh, the recorded version, that's also perfectly acceptable because that's you're not copying in that case, and, and obviously there's attribution. Uh, where you get into trouble with, with copyright is when you plagiarize, which is to say that you copy large sections without any attribution, um, or you just plain copy it and, and copy the whole darn thing and, and pretend it's yours, or or you you copy it and then redistribute it. You know you can't do that. You can't you can't take copy. Um, well, like so for example, if you download the slides from my website, you can do that. That's not a problem. But if you download them and then start circulating them around, that's more of a problem because what you really should be doing is circulating the link. Send people the link. Here's this here's this cool resource I found on the website. Take a listen or take a read. So. But, you know, I'm not going to get my, uh, my knickers in a wad over, um, you know, people quoting stuff. I, the, the thing, the thing that, that gets me is that I can find whole copies of some of my books out there on various piracy websites. And that, that really does hurt um, because, it, you know, it's a very uh, time-consuming endeavor to write a book. And um, and you don't make a whole lot of money off it to begin with, and so you know if if you if you or anyone you know of has got a pirated PDF copy of one of my books, please don't don't circulate it, don't use it, you know, because that that really does damage and it disincentivizes people like me from writing books. So I appreciate you asking, Bruce. Um. All right. Well, I guess people are still still recovering from the holidays, and the questions questions are maybe a little less than uh, what they would ordinarily be. But I'm sure by March or April, you guys will all be fired up. Um, so I'll go ahead and close this down here. Um, uh, just a little more about the resources that are available. So the webinars happen uh, once a month. There's a day time and an evening time webinar. Our new schedule is going to be out shortly for 2016. Go to rbcs-us.com and sign up. Um, let us know if you want a special presentation of this webinar for your company uh, or maybe any webinar, any topic related to software testing, uh, info at rbcs-us.com. Um, you can also sign up for our uh, newsletter at rbcs-us.com. That will get you valuable discounts on consulting and training services and a regular newsletter that includes a featured article on software testing and news about what we're up to. Um, as you can see, we're on Twitter and Facebook. It's shown up towards the bottom of this page. Uh, at RBCS is the uh, professional one, the company one. Leica Test Dog is uh, my personal account. If you do not know who Leica is, do a Google search on Leica. Um, She's a fellow tester. She was a fellow tester. Um, we're also on Facebook, so you can uh, find us out there. Um, and uh, remember to check your email over the next couple days, including the, possibly the spam filter, because you have been entered in uh, the drawing for the free e-learning. Um, so uh, we'll uh, be announcing the winner of that in the next uh, day or so. And uh, Remember that this audio podcast of this, um, uh, these uh, webinars is also done, and you can uh, uh, subscribe to, uh, to that uh, via iTunes or on our RSS feed. Um, 
couple final comments here. Uh, Leica was a good one, says Mercedes. Yes, indeed. Poor, poor Leica gave gave her life for science, but she was a good dog. Um, <clears throat> Jeffrey says, thanks, Rex. You validated my team's reporting approach. By the way, we're using risk scoring from our stakeholders on our story testing, so everyone can see our remaining acceptable risk by story and bug. Excellent. That is excellent. So, so ends another one of our free webinars. We offer these free resources as a service to the software testing community because at RBCS we are a not just for profit company. I hope everybody has a great 2016 and thanks to all for keeping me posted on the um, audio. <laughs>